BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Today, on episode 251, we're going to talk about creatine, including how it works, its effects, safety data, and a special focus on if it causes hair loss. Basically, this episode of the Barbell Medicine Podcast has everything you've ever wanted to know about creatine, and then some. First off, what is creatine? Creatine is a naturally occurring amino acid that is produced by various tissues in the body, such as the kidney, liver, and the pancreas. It's also found in red meat, poultry, and seafood, though at relatively low levels. For example, 5 grams per day is the often recommended supplemental dose, whereas red meat and fish contain about 4 grams of creatine per kilogram, so you need like a full kilo of meat per day, and that's probably not the best way to get creatine. What does creatine do? Creatine is stored primarily in the skeletal muscle tissue, about 95% of it is stored there, with smaller amounts in the brain and gonads. It plays an important role in rapid energy production as part of the phosphocreatine system. During exhaustive resistance and endurance training, phosphocreatine stores are significantly reduced, so if you were to increase those by supplementing creatine, it should improve performance. As far as how it works, during and after a low-load, high-repetition resistance training effort that is taken to failure, ATP levels within the muscle fall somewhere between 30 to 40%. ATP is like the cellular currency of energy. Anything that you need the cell to do that requires energy, you're going to use ATP. Now, as these ATP levels are falling, so do stored levels of creatine phosphate in the muscle. While we make about one to two grams per day of creatine in the kidney and liver predominantly, supplementing with creatine at three to five grams per day increases muscle creatine levels significantly. Thus, by increasing muscle levels of creatine, it is thought that an individual supplementing with creatine has greater stores of energy for rapid energy production, although there are other mechanisms that contribute to increased exercise performance. To start with the rapid energy production thing, creatine supplementation, again, increases intracellular stores of creatine. That's phosphocreatine and free creatine. Increased phosphocreatine in the muscle allows you to make more ATP because you can donate the phosphate from the phosphocreatine to adenosine diphosphate, ADP. It also helps make more phosphocreatine during recovery periods. Additional phosphocreatine and ATP can also reduce the formation of reactive oxygen species, ROS, also reduces the formation of lactate and hydrogen ions, which are both sort of metabolic fatigue byproducts, and it kind of acts as a buffer or antioxidant. So yep, you can make more energy and make it faster. It also seems to increase cellular swelling. So creatine promotes water entry and retention in the muscle cell, subsequently leading to cellular swelling, which may be an anabolic signal for muscle growth by increasing muscle protein synthesis rates and decreasing muscle protein breakdown, although the data on this is mixed. 
Muscle protein synthesis is a complex phenomenon, and there are likely multiple ways that creatine supplementation affects this. This shouldn't be confused with an overall increase in water retention, like edema, which would basically result from an increase in total body water. The sort of effect of creatine on swelling and water retention is mostly a myth based on short-term creatine studies using a loading period, which basically means taking a high dose of creatine, like 20 grams per day, for five to six days, when some people can actually see an increase in total body water. Long-term studies, on the other hand, though those lasting like five to 10 weeks or more, in general show that creatine does not increase total body water. Creatine also doesn't increase fat mass in either the short or long-term settings. So when people say, I took creatine and gained body fat, it probably wasn't the creatine. And the increase in muscular water actually may reduce the risk of dehydration. So when people talk about cramps, dehydration, things of that nature from creatine, if anything, it may do the opposite. So for example, a study on about 70 D1 football players taking creatine or placebo for an entire football season, those taking the creatine had less cramping, less muscle tightness, less muscle strains, and less total injuries. In a group of individuals on dialysis, yes, these were kidney patients who were given 12 grams of creatine about 30 minutes prior to dialysis, they reported less muscle cramps and it reduced their frequency of muscle cramps by about 60%. Creatine can also increase muscle satellite cell activation. The muscle satellite cells are the special type of stem cell that, when stimulated, can facilitate muscle repair and ultimately become new muscle cell nuclei, which are also called myonuclei. Muscle hypertrophy is defined by an increase in muscle mass and subsequently an increase in muscle size. Any increase in muscle mass and size requires additional muscle protein synthesis to sort of maintain that new mass and that new area of muscle. And this is all made possible by increasing the amount of muscle protein made by each myonuclei. Again, those are muscle cell nuclei and an increased number in those myonuclei to support the additional protein synthesis requirements of the larger muscle fibers seems to be necessary. Both resistance training and creatine supplementation increase muscle satellite cell activation to create additional myonuclei, thereby supporting increased muscular hypertrophy. When performed together, the increase in myonuclei is greater than either in isolation. Okay, so that's what creatine is and what it does, but does it actually work and is it safe? Overall, creatine supplementation improves performance during short, high-intensity exercise and increases training adaptations such as strength, power, muscular endurance, and hypertrophy. No studies have reported a performance-reducing effect of creatine, which is called ergolytic. So you've heard of ergogenic, like performance-enhancing, you know, either supplements or drugs. Well, this would be ergolytic, so performance-reducing uh, supplements or drugs. So in any case, no studies have actually reported this ergolytic or performance-reducing effect of creatine, save for early weight gain, which may actually reduce short-term performance in sports like swimming or running. Long-term, the average gain in performance from studies on creatine supplementation typically ranges between about 10 to 15%, depending on the variable of interest and the duration of the study. For example, short-term creatine supplementation has been reported to improve maximal power and strength and repetitions to failure at a given intensity by about 5 to 15%. Sprint performance also appears to increase by a smaller amount, but improves nonetheless. A recent meta-analysis showed a small increase in muscle hypertrophy compared to resistance training plus placebo, likely on the order of a couple of pounds extra of muscle or so in a year. The evidence on endurance training, on the other hand, is less clear, particularly in trained athletes, though the signal appears positive in longer-term studies. Other potential health benefits have been associated with creatine supplementation, but they're still currently under investigation. So for example, many people talk about this quote, cognitive performance, though there's not really good evidence here showing improvements. This is due to mixed results, inconsistent testing protocols for cognitive performance, differences in dosing, and perhaps the requirement for higher doses of creatine 
to get higher brain cell creatine levels. Uh, traumatic brain injury has also been investigated with creatine supplementation, though again, the data isn't clear. And there's also some thoughts about using intravenous creatine phosphate post-heart attack and creatine for cerebral palsy, among many others, but these are all still active areas of research. In general, when people start talking about health benefits of creatine, I am optimistic, but currently acknowledge the lack of research in this area. As far as when to take it, it doesn't really matter when you take it or what you take it with, though if anything, there's some weak evidence that may suggest better results if you take it post-workout, though I'm not really convinced. It probably should be taken daily, though some studies use different frequencies of dosing. For example, taking creatine two times per week versus three times per week were both better than placebo for increasing muscle mass, but not different from each other. So this suggests, oh, you could take it with reduced frequency. However, this sort of reduced frequency, taking it twice or three times per week compared to taking it every day, may increase the likelihood of being a non-responder to creatine, which means those who actually don't see a performance benefit. Speaking of responders and non-responders, the likelihood of being a responder or non-responder has not really been adequately investigated. To date, a single study looking at 11 men showed that the increase in creatine stored in the muscle from supplementing creatine correlated with the increase in performance. Basically, those who actually stored more creatine in the muscles seemed to have more gains, and those who didn't store any more creatine did not see an increase in performance. This is all based on muscle biopsies. The general characteristics of these muscle biopsies of responders included having larger and greater amounts of type 2 fast-twitch muscle fibers and storing less creatine in the muscle to begin with. In this particular study, 27%, three individuals, were responders. They saw a big increase in muscle creatine levels and a big increase in performance. 27% were deemed non-responders. They did not see an increase in performance, and the amount of muscle, uh, amount of creatine stored in the muscle did not increase. And then another 45% were in the middle, and they called those quasi-responders. Again, this is only 11 people, so it's not really clear what to make of this data. We need much, a much bigger sample size and a few different studies looking at this to be able to adequately predict who is and who isn't uh, a creatine responder. And so when people ask, hey, am I a responder to creatine? How would I know? Unfortunately, at this point, it looks like you'd have to take a muscle biopsy and correlate that with an increase in performance. And that introduces a whole bunch of confounding variables that may not make the relationship any more clear, even if you jabbed yourself in the leg and took a muscle biopsy. Regarding the combination of carbohydrates and, or protein with creatine, there isn't much in the way of long-term data showing a difference in muscle creatine content when taking with or without carbohydrates and or protein. Currently, only single-dose data is available, which really isn't what we're looking for. By single-dose data, I mean these people took creatine once with protein or with carbohydrates or with both, and honestly, that doesn't mean anything to me. As far as safety goes, Creatine appears to be safe in both the short and long-term studies lasting well over five years with continuous use, and they basically looked at different measures of kidney function, liver function, immune system function, and other functions of metabolism. Despite the robust safety data in adults, there really isn't any safety data for children or adolescents. A number of studies have actually shown that children and adolescents respond well to creatine, just like adults, their performance increases without adverse effects, but none of the studies otherwise assessed safety. Similarly, there are no safety studies in pregnant women, though some preclinical trials in animal models show that there may be some benefit to the fetus if oxygen supply is compromised. In general, when people ask if their kid should take creatine or if they should take creatine, continue creatine while they're pregnant, my general recommendation for the former with kids is maybe, and that really just depends on where you're getting the creatine from. I'm more concerned that the supplement might be contaminated or otherwise not third-party tested. We'll talk about that shortly. For pregnant individuals, I think hard pass on creatine 
One is this really isn't a phase in the life to sort of prioritize maximum strength or power gains. It's a different uh, focus. That doesn't mean that training should be compromised. It just means that the risk of any sort of untoward outcome from creatine, because it hasn't been adequately assessed during the pregnancy period, it far outweighs any potential benefits in this particular period of time. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature, maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash barbellpod today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash barbellpod for 10% off your first month. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. In any case, there's no real reason to cycle creatine. That comes up all the time. Based on existing data, you should know that the washout period basically means how long does it take for creatine to be out of your system for the muscle levels of phosphocreatine and free creatine to return to normal. It may be as long as 30 days or even more in some individuals. So when people are like, oh, I missed taking creatine for a week, uh, I wouldn't expect that to have any impact on performance if they've been taking it for months and months or potentially years beforehand. Uh, that said, it just seems to take a longer period of time to wash out of the system than most people give it credit for. So we think it should be taken every day, though it doesn't really matter when you take it or what you take it with. As far as how much of it you should take, there's this idea that if you are new to supplementing with creatine, you should load it first. So creatine loading is taking high doses of creatine, uh, 20 to 25 grams per day for about a week. Typically, it's split up into smaller doses, multiple smaller doses given throughout the day. Sometimes this can be weight-based at 0.3 grams of creatine per kilogram body weight per day. Again, it's for about five to seven days. Contrast that to maintenance-level dosing, which is three to five grams per day, or again, for weight-basing, 
0.05 grams of creatine per kilogram body weight per day. With respect to loading, it generally increases the creatine content in the muscle faster than starting with a maintenance dose, but at the end of a month, it's pretty much all a wash, meaning that there's just short-term potential benefit to increasing the muscle stores of creatine if you load it for a week. Basically, you get there a little faster, but otherwise, there's really no difference after about four weeks uh, of time. So if you're wondering, is loading a good idea for me? Here's the sort of algorithm that I use. If an athlete is at all worried about short-term weight gain, I would not recommend doing a loading phase as there's a higher risk of loading phase-associated weight gain. If somebody has a history of gastrointestinal side effects with creatine, like diarrhea, stomach pain, etc., I also would not recommend doing a loading phase as this has been associated with doses higher than 10 grams per day. Finally, for folks who are going to be taking creatine for greater than a month, where any performance benefit is not important to realize before that time has passed, I would recommend just starting out with a maintenance dose. If none of those things apply to you and you really need that performance benefit within the next 30 days, otherwise bad things are going to happen, sure, knock yourself out. You can do a loading phase. Okay, on to the type of creatine. We are going to 10 out of 10 recommend taking creatine monohydrate. This is the most studied and commonly used form of creatine over the last 30 years. 99% of it is absorbed into the tissue or excreted into the urine, so most of it doesn't actually chemically change or cyclize into other things like creatinine, which is a breakdown product of muscle. So if 99% of it is getting absorbed or excreted, only 1% would actually cyclize into creatinine, whereas far higher amounts of other types of creatine, like creatine ethyl ester, do cyclize uh, to a much higher degree, perhaps leading to weird creatinine values on a blood test. For example, there have been people who've taken creatine ethyl ester, and within the first week, if they do a blood test, their creatinine levels are six or seven times higher than they normally are, which would lead your doctor to wonder, are you in fact having kidney failure? And then you'd have to tell your doctor that, no, I don't think I'm having kidney failure. I'm just taking a substandard form of creatine. That doesn't mean you're substandard, just that the creatine that you're taking is substandard. Again, there are other forms that are available and marketed as being superior, but this is not supported by evidence. In the research, most creatine monohydrate that's used are micronized forms of creatine monohydrate, and this just means that the creatine monohydrate is basically smaller mesh particle sized. Other forms of creatine monohydrate are available for manufacturers to use in their supplements. Some of it's micronized and some of it's not. Now, not every micronized creatine-containing supplement will have micronized listed on the label. Some will list it as Creapure, which is a brand name type of micronized creatine, and others will just list it as creatine monohydrate. That's what we do with our supplement PeriRx. I would recommend sticking with supplements containing creatine as creatine monohydrate or micronized creatine monohydrate, Creapure if they're using the brand name, and then looking for a third-party certification. Now, this is important because less than 10% of available creatine or creatine-containing products on Amazon are actually third-party certified. From a business perspective, I can understand why, as it costs a lot of extra money to batch test each supplement that you make, and it may not be apparent that this benefits sales. People buy all sorts of terrible supplements because their buddy told them to do it. They saw an athlete take it. They saw an athlete endorse it. And ultimately, perhaps those dollars spent for third-party testing are better directed at marketing. In any case, we pay a pretty penny to inform sport to test every batch to make sure that not only the amount of supplement that we list on the label is actually contained within the supplement, but that it also doesn't contain any contaminants. And 10 out of 10 would recommend for any dietary supplement that you take, making sure that it has some sort of third-party testing. We use Informed Sport, but NSF is also good. USP is also good. There are a number of other places that do this. It should be on the label because, again, if you're a manufacturer of a supplement and you're paying for this stuff, you're going to want to display it proudly on your label. 
Okay, with all that out of the way, does creatine cause hair loss? This claim came from a single paper in 2009 which had college-age rugby players taking creatine at a loading dose, 25 grams per day for one week, and then 5 grams per day for an additional 14 days. So already, right out of the gate, you should know that they didn't actually measure hair loss given that the study was less than a month long. The players taking creatine saw an increase in serum dihydrotestosterone, which is DHT. We'll call it DHT for the rest of the podcast. And this was about 40% higher than baseline. Because DHT is linked to hair loss, the theory about creatine causing hair loss was generated and traveled around the world like wildfire. There's an old saying that a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still putting on its shoes. I like that, and I think that's very apt for this particular instance. So what's the deal here? DHT is a metabolite of testosterone. It's formed when the enzyme 5-alpha reductase converts free testosterone to DHT. Now, there are two major types of 5-alpha reductase enzymes. Type 1 are found in sebaceous glands, the skin cells, and sweat glands. Type 2 are found in the outer root sheath of hair follicles, also the epididymis that's in the testes, the vas deferens, also in the testes, seminal vesicles, and prostate. You guys know where those things are. Type 2 5-alpha reductase enzyme plays a greater role in androgenetic alopecia, which is also known as male pattern baldness. Okay, so with that biochemistry out of the way, what happens to DHT levels over a lifetime? So following puberty, DHT levels increase to their sort of adult level, their near normal level, due to primarily of the activity of type 1 5-alpha reductase enzyme. That's not the one associated with hair follicles. The importance of 5-alpha reductase should not be understated. Those with mutations of these genes for that enzyme were dysfunctionally absent. Effectively, there's no male pattern baldness, no androgenetic alopecia. Similarly, inhibitors of 5-alpha reductase like finasteride are effective therapies for androgenetic alopecia. The utility of DHT levels in diagnosing and the cause of male pattern baldness or androgenetic alopecia is somewhat controversial. In general, yes, DHT levels are higher in men with this type of hair loss than those without. They also seem to have higher levels of 5-alpha reductase and more androgen receptors in the areas of the scalp that bolts. That said, some studies, but not all, show no statistical significance or correlation of DHT levels with the progression of baldness in some studies. For example, some studies show that those who do have male pattern baldness versus those who don't, that the DHT levels are indistinguishable between those who do have it and those who don't. Now, the risk of androgenetic alopecia appears to have strong roots in genetics, with young men that have a balding father being more than five times more likely to have it than young men whose fathers aren't balding. Now, in this particular study on the rugby players, DHT was about 20% lower at baseline in the group who got creatine compared to those who got the placebo. At the end, the placebo group's DHT level went down a little bit, and the group who got creatine, their DHT levels went up a little bit very close to the same level that the placebo group started at. Now, if you're a statistics nerd, you kind of already can predict what's happening. Effectively, this likely created a statistically significant difference that was artificial, not necessarily clinically relevant. To date, no other study has measured DHT levels in creatine users versus placebo. Additionally, no long-term studies have been done on creatine and hair loss. An additional question that has been raised relates to testosterone levels and it potentially being elevated due to exercise and or creatine supplementation. Turns out, testosterone levels don't reliably change due to exercise or creatine supplementation. What's more, it appears that increases in testosterone in and of themselves don't reliably produce hair loss. For example, studies where individuals who had previously been castrated and therefore aren't really producing any testosterone, if you give them exogenous testosterone or supplemental testosterone, they show no increase in baldness without family history of the condition. 
whereas those given exogenous testosterone, even at very low doses, that is below testosterone replacement therapy levels, TRT levels, who do have a family history of baldness, they show similar rates of male pattern baldness to the general population. It seems that genetic predisposition is required for expression of baldness. And I also wonder, what is the level of concern for hair loss or androgenetic alopecia secondary to, quote, optimizing testosterone, as this would give the body more of the raw substrate to convert to DHT? I suspect few people are actually worried about an increased risk of hair loss due to an increase in testosterone levels from exercise or creatine supplementation. But it is interesting that people will always ask questions about male pattern baldness, hair loss with creatine, but nobody asks anything about testosterone. Overall, creatine supplementation probably doesn't increase the risk of androgenetic alopecia in men without any sort of genetic predisposition to the condition. Then again, it's not clear if creatine supplementation does either. The results of a single study investigating DHT, finding a likely artificial difference in DHT levels between those taking creatine versus placebo, is not particularly compelling. All right, that's it for this episode of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.